we are recording episode 57. We're rolling, baby. Live action. Live from Zoom. Here we go. <laughs> Live from the virtual internet. <laughs> Live from Zoom. It's Sunday afternoon. Like that actually, now. that's not bad. Yeah. I like that. That's that's cute. <laughs> Do you have any updates? No. No. I haven't left the house cool. in a few days. <laughs> Um, really <laughs> yeah I think I have a little bit of cold like my my nose is sniffly and I have a sore throat but it's definitely no, it's like actually, yeah it's, the def same thing. it's definitely something like that like it's not the Rona I know it's well I don't know it's not but it, I really don't think it is yeah no I definitely I have the same thing and it's like stuffy I have so much like built up oh, yes I, I hate this season this like in between right before it really hits I hate it too like I wanted to get warm but right now it's like everything is just ugh. yeah so I just always have tissue on me nice I love how our conversation just goes straight to the weather too because <laughs> it always, always like does <laughs> it always comes back to the weather well, with that, I don't really have any updates either, except we're both kind of feeling a little shitty. So <laughs> great. <laughs> I hope our listeners out there are feeling better than we are. Hope you guys are doing well. But we actually have a little catch for everyone listening. And we are giving away $10 million. <laughs> yeah. Technically, we're not the ones giving it away. But if you're looking to win $10 million, keep listening because this is not an ad. This is true. This is real life. Non-spawn. Non-spawn. Keep listening and we'll tell you how it can all be yours. If you don't believe us, what about $100,000? I would take like $1,000, honestly. I would take $100. I would take $10. <laughs> I would take five bucks. <laughs> I would take $5. <laughs> we seriously, yeah, we need to, we need to get on that. But anyway, no, we didn't just win the lottery, even though I do have a serious addiction to scratchers. I am obsessed with the crossword puzzles, and I only do the crossword puzzles unless I'm gifted something else. Which I think are probably single-handedly the one that people lose the most on. Probably, but I always feel better even if I lose because it took me a good 10 minutes maybe to do. Why don't so you just I, get like a book of crosswords? Because there's no money in that. At least there's some money in this, you know, like... I've been pretty lucky on those. I usually win my money back. Anyway, this week we're covering an active and ongoing investigation from the 90s, possibly a better decade than we are in now. Hmm, that's, that's a hot take. Tis. So we bring you America's biggest property crime ever. It's the biggest museum art heist in the world. And if you haven't heard of it, it's the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum Art Heist, which is listed number one out of number 25 from the 25 greatest art heists of all time, according to artnews.com. The Gardner theft of the 90s remains unsolved to this day, despite ongoing international searches by the FBI. The artwork stolen from the historic museum located in Boston is considered to be worth about $500 million. And they are giving away any to anyone $10 million if you know where they are. Could be Joe so. Schmo off the street, but I mean, you have to know where they are. I mean, I think that's, that's the catch. Yeah, I think they actually have to find them and then it'd be in their hands. Yeah, like you need, definitely need proof that you know where they are. <laughs> like, I don't think you could just say it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so either.
Well, anyway, you know how we love giving a good backstory with, you know, some historical facts. So today we present to you the following museum history, which comes from the official site, gardnermuseum.org. Isabella Stewart Gardner was born in New York City on April 14, 1840. She was born into a well-off-to-do family. Her father, David Stewart, made his fortune importing Irish linen and made some pretty good investments along the way. Isabella was privately educated in New York and then finished abroad, which sounds lovely. I would love to do that. She was then introduced to John, also known as Jack, Lowell Gardner Jr. by his sister, who was a Paris schoolmate, Julia Gardner. In 1860, right before her 20th birthday, Isabella Stewart married John Gardner in Grace Church in New York City, and then they moved to Beantown. You know what I'm also realizing? What? Like all these people have names that are like towns or cities. So I feel like probably all our towns are just named after rich people, which I guess yes. makes sense. But like, I'm just realizing like Gardner is a town, <laughs> Lowell is a town. Yeah, like they definitely just like named it after all these people. Yes, that's exactly what they did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just fun. Fun little fact. How do I get everyone? a town named after me? I guess you have to be rich. Yeah. But would you, you wouldn't use your first name, would you? You would probably use your last the name. The town of Katie. <laughs> <laughs> Population one. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I can't. It's not like there's just extra land laying around. Yeah, no. Land is precious these days. I don't know. Just a thought. In 1863, the couple had a son, John Lowell Gardner III, also known as Jackie, who unfortunately died of pneumonia at less than two years old. In 1867, hoping to rouse Isabella from her depression, John took her to Northern Europe and Russia. Isabella loved traveling and she was drawn to the intellectual life of Boston and Cambridge. In 1878, she was invited to join the Dante Society by Charles Eliot Norton, the first professor of art history at Harvard University. She began collecting rare books, manuscripts, all the works, beginning with the early editions of Dante's works. In 1884, Isabella and Jack visited the Palazzo Barbero, a Venetian palace owned by Bostonians Daniel and Ariana Curtis, not Ariana Grande. Different people, different time. The Palazzo was a gathering and a major source of inspiration for Isabella in the creation of her museum in Boston. John Gardner died of a stroke on December 10th, 1898. Six weeks later, Isabella dove into her work and continued with the shared plan of the museum and selected local architect Willard T. Sears. At the time, there were almost no other buildings in the area. It's kind of hard to imagine today because the museum itself is sandwiched in between much larger buildings. You have Simmons College on one side and then Mass Art on the other with apartments sprinkled in. But it's cool to imagine just that building being there. This was before they put like five buildings in one square foot. Yeah, before they just stacked them on top of each other. Yeah. Construction of Isabella's museum began in 1899 and was completed in late 1901. She devoted herself to arranging works of art in the historic galleries on the first three floors and she lived on the fourth floor. 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 Pretty cool. Definitely I would want to live there as well on the fourth floor. Isabella installs her collection of paintings, sculptures, tapestries, furniture, manuscripts, rare books, and decorative arts. On January 1st, 1903, guests were invited to a grand opening. There was a concert by members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra 
in a dramatic unveiling of the interior courtyard garden. When she opened the museum to the public the following month, visitors were invited to see one of the finest private art collections in America. Isabella continued to acquire works and change the installations for the rest of her life. Isabella Stewart Gardner suffered a stroke in 1919, but received guests in her museum for the next five years. She died in 1924, leaving a museum, quote, for the education and enjoyment of the public forever. She provided an endowment to operate the museum, stipulating in her will that nothing in the gallery should be changed and no items be acquired or sold from the collection. I also remember when we went to the museum, because spoiler, we actually went and got to see all of this. I think she designated a day for herself. So um, it has to be followed because it's in her will. Yeah, it was a, has to celebrate it. Like a mass, like once a year, she wanted a mass held in her name and like it still is. Like there's, there's a little chapel in there somewhere and she once every year, yeah, it's like mass held in her honor. And she was like, yeah, she wrote it in her will. She was like, for the rest of time after I die, <laughs> I just want you to keep doing it every year. And they're like, okay, so we still are. That's Pretty amazing. Cool. Pretty cool, boss moves only. Okay, now we're gonna talk about what we all really came here for. The heist, this is it, baby. We'll set the scene for you guys. It was the day after St. Patrick's Day in Boston. And that's pretty important because um, for those of you who are familiar with Boston at all, you know that St. Patrick's Day is pretty big here. People of Irish descent make up the largest ethnic group in Boston. It started with the wave of Irish immigration to the city caused by many factors, but most notable, the Great Famine in Ireland. Even today, according to worldpopulationreview.com, for 2021, the largest ethnic group in Boston is still Irish, accounting for 15.8% of the population, followed by Italians with 8.3% of the population. So basically what we're trying to say is that every bar in Boston is pretty much stacked on St. Patrick's Day. There's huge bar crawls, copious amounts of Guinness and green beers just flowing through the streets. Corned beef and cabbage is a staple. Mm, I can't wait to have corned beef this I think I'm gonna have it this weekend, which by the way, for some reason, every single time we've been dropping episodes, it's been like on the anniversary of something that happens in the episode every time. And we're not even doing it on purpose. I know people are going to think we're great planners, but we're really just <laughs> it's literally a coincidence. The past like three episodes have come out on like the anniversary of the person's death or something. This is the anniversary of the actual heist. It, yep. Well, kind of, it's going to be like Thursday, but still. That's crazy. It's super weird. And I promise our listeners, we are not planning. Why? We should say we, we are. Pick it like on a wheel. <laughs> I mean, we're like putting a lot of effort into this. So yeah, I mean, it's all planned out. We are, but I <laughs> feel like it's just been, we've been really lucky this whole season. Yeah. So basically happy early St. Patrick's Day, everyone. Or happy St. Patrick's Woo! Day. Listen to our Wednesday. Um, top of the morning to you. So anyway, you know, there's also parades in Boston, there's fiddle music everywhere, step dancing, um, which is a celebration of both Irish American culture and evacuation day. For one day, every March 17th, everyone is Irish. Of course, there's also the Irish Heritage Trail and the Irish Film Festival for those who want to learn more about the history of the Irish in Boston and Irish culture overall. 
Early in the morning after St. Patrick's Day on March 18, 1990, a pair of thieves disguised themselves as Boston police officers and stole 13 works of art. The stolen artwork was done by world-renowned artists like Rembrandt, Vermeer, Minot, Manet, and Vegas. I'm not a... (laughs) I'm not an art person, um, just off the top. I've never heard of any of those people before this episode, but apparently they are famous and maybe a lot of people just think I'm uncultured, which is true. Okay, so during the time of the robbery, there were two security guards on duty, and apparently both of the guards that were there that night were pretty inexperienced, so go figure. One of the guards, Richard Abbott, played in a rock band. So he was basically a rock star by night and then a security guard uh no reverse that he was basically a rock star by day and security guard by night which is pretty cool by his own admission he would sometimes arrive to work drunk and or high from his day's performance but he insists that he was sober this night of the robbery so okay at 1 a.m a vehicle pulled up near the side entrance of the museum and two men in police uniforms ring the museum buzzer and tell richard abbott the guard that was on duty that they were responding to a disturbance call and they were they demanded to be let in. Abbott probably felt a little pressured, you know, these are two policemen knocking on the door, so he broke protocol and allowed them through the employee-only entrance. You also have to keep in mind that this was a little after 1 a.m., the day after St. Patrick's Day in Boston, so most of the city was probably still partying at this time. Um, So it probably seemed reasonable that police would have plenty of disturbance calls to respond to. But unfortunately, these weren't actually police. They were only police impersonators. So the police impersonators, a.k.a. the robbers, ordered Abbott to step away from the watch desk while they handcuffed him and the other security guard that was on duty. Then they tied them to some pipes in the basement of the museum with duct tape. Supposedly, one of the fake police officers asked them if they were uncomfortable, and they even apologized for having to tie them up. Now, the real question is, did this all take place within a 24-minute span? From 1.24 a.m. to 1.48 a.m., nothing but bringing the guards downstairs and tying them up happens. So, I mean, does that make sense? I don't know. Anthony Amore, who was and still is the museum's security director, said the time frame suggests, quote, extreme confidence that no one was coming and a comfort level with the museum, end quote. So how did this happen? The museum was equipped with motion detectors, so the thieves' movement were recorded. From the recordings, we can tell when the 13 works of art were stolen. We can kind of trace their path and movement throughout the museum. Um, So we're going to give you a little bit of a timeline here from the, the whole entire time they were in the museum, where we know they were based on these motion detectors. 1.48 a.m. It seems the thieves climbed the main staircase with purpose and walked down the second floor corridor which overlooks the courtyard on the southwest corner into the Dutch room. 1.51 a.m., one thief leaves the Dutch room and goes through the early Italian and Raphael room into a narrow room, the short gallery, which is on the same floor as the Dutch room. 1.54 a.m., alarms tip back in the Dutch room. 1.56 a.m., alarms suggest both thieves are in the Dutch room. 2.08 a.m., one thief goes back into the short gallery. Now, the short gallery was diagonally opposite the Dutch room on the second floor. They took a bronze eagle finial called the Eagle Finial by Antoine Denis Chaudet, along with five drawings by Edgar Degas, three mounted jockeys leaving the paddock 
Procession on a Road Near Florence, and two pieces both titled Study for the Program. Okay, so then 2.09 to 2.26 a.m. This is an 18-minute span. One thief is in the short gallery. One is in the Dutch room. Maybe they stopped to look around the museum. Maybe they just really took their time dissembling the artwork or storing it safely away somehow. I don't know, but it, this was a whole 18 minutes. In the Dutch room, they took all four Rembrandts off the walls, which include Rembrandt's Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which is his only known seascape, and Rembrandt's A Lady and Gentleman in Black. Both were cut from their frames, though they did leave behind a self-portrait of the artist himself that Rembrandt created. The thieves also took Vermeer's The Concert and Govert Flink's Landscape with an Obelisk and an ancient Chinese bronze goo called the Shang Dynasty goo, which was a beaker, which was on a display table. They also took a small self-portrait etched by Rembrandt from the side of a chest. The concert plus the two Rembrandts alone were worth more than 500 million total. So, I mean, these were hot ticket items that they were picking up. From 2.27 to 2.28 a.m., at least one thief is at work in the Dutch room, perhaps going back over the pieces or taking more artwork. 2.28 to 2.40 a.m., these are what we call the mystery minutes. The detectors register absolutely nothing. Edward Manet's, also sorry if I'm pronouncing anyone's name wrong, I'm probably pronouncing everyone's name wrong, but that's okay. Edward Manet's Chez Tortoni was the 13th piece stolen, removed from the walls of the Blue Room. It was the only piece stolen from a gallery on the first floor, but according to Amour, there was no alarm in the Blue Room that went off that night. And nothing about the theft or that painting matches the theft of the other 12. He said, quote, it's almost as if there were two different heists because the MO is different. They're not similar, except that they happen on the very same night, end quote. 2.40 a.m., the, the inside door opens and closes. 2.41 a.m., the outside door opens and closes. 2.45 a.m., the inside door opens again, followed by the outside door. So this could mean one of two things. One, the thieves left separately about four minutes apart, or two, they had to make two separate trips to their car to carry the artwork, basically. The guards remained handcuffed down in the basement, taped to those pipes until police arrived at 8.15 a.m. I think from what I read, it was like a changing of shifts. So the next guards arrived, but they, they couldn't get in. So they had to call the police. The police found the two guards handcuffed downstairs. So that, that was 8.15 a.m. After a total of 81 minutes inside the museum, the robbers left. And that is an extraordinary long time for an art heist. Extremely long. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, think about it. Like, you, you have $500 million worth of things that you're carrying, that you're stealing, and you're in this museum for an hour and 21 minutes. Yeah, I'd be in and out. It would take me like, five. The risk that you're going to get caught is just like exponentially increasing with every minute. I mean, I know, like, we'll get into it more. Obviously, they know that they the security guards are set away. But unless you know for certain that there's nothing else that could trigger the police coming, how are you risking 81 minutes in there? Like, that's nuts. Yeah, clearly this was not a typical robbery because if it was, they would have stolen all of the art from the same floor 
or the earliest pieces of artwork and all of the ones from one room or all of the highest priced ones, like the 13 pieces of art that were stolen from upstairs and downstairs, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Why would they steal it sporadically? Yeah, like if you could get the whole vision of where these things were located in a museum, like it, when we saw them, it was nuts. Like it was like one piece over here and then go down the entire hallway, one piece over here, go up three floors, one piece over here. Like it was so sporadic. Yeah, it was all over the place. And there's a lot of stairs there. <laughs> there are. There, yeah, there were. So these robbers had to have been in decent shape because they were going up and down and around town all over the place. I mean, they had 81 minutes to climb some stairs. Like, <laughs> Maybe that's they, what took so long. They just probably weren't like handicapped. Like they, they were probably normal. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think there were elevators back then. Maybe there were, but I don't, I don't think they would have taken it. I didn't even think there were not, or I didn't see elevators. Yeah, there were elevators. It is, um, it, it is handicap accessible now. There's elevators oh, hidden in the back, ones. next to the bathrooms, like in the oh, 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 yeah, the area. But eighty-one minutes in total. This was planned out. This was methodical. The timestamps of the sensor show that the robbers took their sweet time. They first checked the rooms and then it almost seemed like they doubled back to recheck the rooms and then they took the artwork. They were very careful. They were very meticulous. This was not random. The pieces taken suggest they were chosen and taken for a reason. Today, empty frames are hanging in the museum as placeholders for the missing works. It's very interesting because when you move through the museum, you can physically see the empty frames and you also realize they're quite spaced out like we said they were. They're very spaced out. While the empty frames are often seen as symbols of hope that the museum will see their return, others see it as a constant reminder of the largest property theft in America and the world. The museum director at the time, Anne Hawley, was barely six months into the job when this happened and said, quote, it was overwhelming to see what had been done. I mean, to trash a museum like that. It was just like the barbarians had been through. I mean, to pull frames off the wall and shatter glass it was clearly not people that loved art that did that. I mean, cutting paintings out of frames. I mean, it's unspeakable, end quote. The boldest art heist ever. Handcuffing the guards and then taking their own sweet time throughout the museum. It's the largest art heist of all time, and it happened right here in Boston. The most valuable thing ever stolen in the history of the world is the Vermeer. So what was really strange was that there was never a request for ransoms in all this time. So who stole it and why? Was someone paid to steal it? To date, no suspects have ever been found or prosecuted. The 13 stolen works of art remain missing. There were a couple of people that were suspected over time. One of the most widely accepted theories about what happened is that it was orchestrated by local mobsters who sold the work on the black market. David Turner is one man who was long suspected of being involved in the heist, but was never charged. Turner was an employee of Carmelo Merlino, one of Boston's late crime lords who officials believed was the mastermind of the scheme. David Turner was nabbed in the FBI sting in 1999 while trying to rob an armored car and was told he was wanted for the 1990 robbery of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. 
According to the Globe, Turner was offered leniency if he returned the stolen artwork, but he denied all involvement in the crime. Turner wrote a letter to Boston Magazine reiterating his innocence for the Gardner heist that said, quote, they think that I was the person who committed the robbery, which is false. They thought that if I was facing serious charges, I would be motivated to help facilitate the return of the paintings. Well, they got the serious charges against me, and now I'm going to die in prison, end quote. While federal authorities said he remained a suspect and reduced his attempted robbery sentence, which ultimately led to his early release, they won't say if Turner agreed to cooperate or share information in the art theft. Turner was released on November 13th, 2019, after spending 21 years in prison for a different crime. Arthur Brand was a Dutch private investigator who believed to be an expert in international art crimes. He has been able to negotiate with international gangs to recover millions of dollars in artwork. A year after the heist, Brand acquired images of the stolen artwork in storage. And then in 2010, Brand said he believed that the pieces were in possession of a member of the Irish Republican Army. He continued to work on the case with the FBI for about 12 years. His ultimate theory is that pieces were originally stolen from small time thieves who then sold them to US gang members who then shipped them off to Ireland to some top ranking commanders of the Irish Republican Army. So just to clarify with that one, Arthur Brand isn't like the suspect. Arthur Brand is the person that's been helping the FBI investigate, but his theory is basically that ultimately it got sold to the Irish Republican Army, and now the works are in Ireland. In 2013, authorities said the robbers belonged to a criminal organization based in New England, and investigators said they tracked the art to Maine, Connecticut, and Philadelphia, but they found nothing. In 2014, the FBI identified the culprits present at the museum as George Restfelder and Lenny DeMuzio. George and Lenny also belonged to the crew of local criminal Carmelo Merlino. They both died within a year of the notorious robbery in a kind of weird way. George died from a drug overdose and Lenny was murdered. The FBI said in 2015, the two suspects were now dead. Robert, AKA Bobby Garente was a Boston mob associate and became a key suspect in the theft in 2010 six years after his death. He was associated with the TRC Auto Electric Gang and was a father figure to David Turner, TRC's leader, Carmelo Merlino, who walked Bobby's wife, Elaine, down the aisle at their wedding. In 2005, Garente's friend, Earl Bergman, and Garente's daughter, Janine, came forward twice with what Janine claimed was remnants from the masterpiece. But the so-called remnants were actually chips of house paint on the first occasion, and then turned out to be shreds of a magazine cover on the second. In 2016, the Boston Globe learned from former mob leader, Bobby Luzzi, that back in 1998, Garente told him he had buried some of the stolen gardener art beneath a concrete slab of a house in Florida. Okay, moving on. This is like the fifth theory we got going on now. Robert Gentile, a former mobster, was suspected of concealing secrets about the theft. The FBI searched Gentile's house in Manchester, Connecticut, not once, but three different times in the last decade, with dozens of agents, ground-penetrating radar, and canine dog units. Authorities found guns, five gun silencers, drugs, $20,000 stuffed in a grandfather's clock, some police hats, badges, and a list of stolen works with possible black market prices. 
Gentile, however, denied any involvement in the crime and went on to state that he had been framed by Elaine Guarante in 2010, who, as we said, was the widow of Bobby Guarante and had known ties to organized crime and was also identified as a person of interest in the heist. Elaine reportedly told investigators before her death that her late husband had a seafood diner in Portland and had given some of the art to Gentile afterwards at a hotel in Maine. Gentile responded, quote, out and out lie. And about Elaine, he said, quote, she's crazy. She's bipolar. She's nuts. I know she was nuts, end quote. Gentile was released from prison in March 2019 after serving four years for three guns and no, sorry, let me. Okay. Gentile was released from prison in March 2019 after serving four years for three gun and drug cases. Authorities do not believe he has told them all he knows about the artwork. Jeffrey Kelly, the FBI's lead investigator on the theft since 2002, said, quote, when this case initially went down, the suspect list was pages long, and over the last 24 years, we've really been able to whittle that list down. We do know that Mr. Gentile would possibly have information that could help us in the recovery of these paintings, and that's why we approached Mr. Gentile for his assistance, end quote. In a new interview with WTNH, Gentile said, quote, they can say what they want. I don't care. It doesn't bother me, end quote. Robert Gentile, now 87, is believed to be the last surviving person of interest in the theft of the 13 pieces of stolen art. Gentile stands by his initial statement, though, and, quote, claimed to have no knowledge of the Gardner heist or the stolen artwork. Now, interestingly, all of the suspects have a common thread here and that's the mob. In the late 1960s, Merlino opened an auto repair garage in the gritty Boston neighborhood of Dorchester. The heist may have been plotted there, possibly. Merlino had talked about having access to stolen paintings after being arrested for operating a cocaine trafficking ring out of the garage in 1994. A few years later, the FBI placed an undercover informant into Merlino's garage and secretly taped Merlino's continued talking with associates about the Gardner paintings. Soon Merlino and the informant were plotting the robbery of an armored car depot in Easton, Massachusetts. The first thing that the FBI told Merlino and the three others arrested in the scheme was that all charges would be, would be dropped if they could reveal the location of the stolen art but he was unable to do that. So Merlino went to prison and there he died in 2005. So one final theory that I feel like we have to kind of consider in this case is, could the heist have been an inside job? So it's not really a suspect, but could there have been multiple suspects involved that knew what was happening here? There did seem to be a lot of coincidences that came together in favor of the robbers on the night of the heist. The museum security system just happened to be in the process of getting revamped. Um, I don't know if you watched this BuzzFeed Unsolved video, but I watched um, one of those BuzzFeed Unsolved videos, which I love, I watch them all the time. They had one on the heist, and they were talking about how the museum actually had a security expert come by and check the whole place out shortly before the heist. And basically the security expert told them like their whole system was outdated. And he was like, yeah, you guys basically need to redo the whole thing. Like it, you, you need to do X, Y, and Z. This is really out of date. But I don't know, I guess the museum just procrastinated a little bit. And I guess 
that was just a little bit too long. So um, the robbers also took a good guess when they entered Richard Abbott's office first and they hand him, handcuffed him right away because the button to call the police was under Abbott's desk. So they eliminated that threat right away. Basically, with all the alarms going off, the alarms themselves wouldn't trigger the police, but the security officer would have to press the button on their desk to actually call the police. So obviously that couldn't happen because the officers were tied up in the basement. So that was not a threat. Sure, it would make sense to assume the police button would be there, probably, or maybe they scoped out the place beforehand. That's always a, an option. Come in, uh, clock in, there would be two guards. Rick Abbott was one of the night watchmen on duty the night of the crime. Cops rang the doorbell. <laughs> they said, Boston police, we got a report of a disturbance on the premises. So I buzzed them in, the cop that was dealing with me turned to me and said, don't I know you, don't I recognize you? I think there's a warrant out for your arrest. Can you step out from behind the desk? But then there's some things that don't line up about Abbott himself, the security guard, and his accounts of that night. When the police interviewed Abbott the next day, he claimed he couldn't remember what the robbers looked like. And it's not like they were wearing masks or anything. He said they weren't. He was just wearing gloves, or they were wearing gloves. But he just said he couldn't remember what they looked like. So he was not really useful when they were doing like the sketches. And then why did Abbott let them in at all? The museum security policy clearly states that no unauthorized personnel should be let in. And that does include police officers. But Abbott claimed that he was not aware of that policy for the museum. And like, I get that this is just a job for the security guards and they were young at the time. And so maybe they just didn't care all that much. But I do feel like knowing who's authorized to enter the museum seems like like probably the first thing you would learn for the job. Yeah, like a quick training. Welcome. Here's your job. This is what you do. You guard the place and you do not let anyone come in. Like, yeah, that's probably tip number one. And then they take you around where you're supposed to walk through each night. <laughs> the biggest thing as a guard is to make sure no one comes in. Yeah, like they're like, OK, if you can take anything away from this training, it's like <laughs> one, don't let anyone in. And that's pretty much it. So. I don't know. You had one job. You had literally one job. Who knows? I mean, Abbott was also only 23 years old at the time that this whole thing happened. So maybe that's something to consider. Maybe we're all a little bit misguided. During this time period, he'd definitely be on TikTok, like behind the security desk making his little videos. Yes, doing the <laughs> dance chops. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, and all of a sudden, like in the middle of the talk, you hear the alarms go off and you're like, what's happening? You see them in the background as the museum is getting broken into. That would be <laughs> well, yeah, not broken into go viral. Through the door, but yeah. Damn. Crazy. Yeah. Um, he I mean he was also a rock star, so you know what? He was probably like jamming out all night. We don't know what was happening, you know. But one of the most suspicious points about Abbott is that a day before the heist happened, there's actually been video footage that comes out that shows Abbott let someone into the museum the day the day before. And this is assumed to be an unauthorized person, someone who Abbott shouldn't have let in, because as we now know, you shouldn't let anyone in. But when he was questioned about it, Abbott said he did not remember letting anyone in that day, even though there's video footage of it. So that's weird because, you know, there's only two people on 
guard you you would and like nothing's happening when you're guarding a museum at night like it's boring i don't even know what they did without cell phones i can't even imagine but i'm assuming if he let someone in that would be a, like the one event that happened that night so i don't know um maybe he this was one of the nights where he had too much to drink at his rock show i don't know but to this day abbott strongly maintains his innocence he lives a modest existence and is somewhat unconcerned with solving this case. Yeah, he is quoted as saying, quote, I seem to be the only one who's not trying to figure it out. And that mainly comes down to, I'm just glad to be alive, end quote. And I, I read something that was really funny. <laughs> like he was like talking about maintaining his innocence. And he was like, it's not really something I try to talk about a lot. Like it's not something that I delve into all the time because think about it like after this i was trying to find a job and it's not like i just want to be like well at my last job i was a security <laughs> officer but like and i let one 500 million dollars walk out the door <laughs> yeah he's like i'm just gonna advertise that when i'm looking for jobs and i'm like that's a fair point yeah i would probably not even add it to the resume <laughs> that's tough like, that's a tough hit i don't know the footage it that is very weird to me. If anything in this, you know, pops out, it would be the mob, the mafia, you know, and then the footage of someone going in the day before. I mean, listen, I have my whole theory on this. And I mean, I think, I don't know, it's so hard because I feel like it would be, it would make so much sense if this was an inside job. Like it, it would tie up a lot of loose ends for me. But at the same time, I don't know what it is about the security guard guy, but he seems so honest to me. He's just like, listen, I was a 23 year old. Like I was trying to make some money. Like he doesn't come off to me like he's hiding something. So you you question how in God's name could this happen? But then you start to think like, okay, this kind of was like a, and it still is like, it's a small museum. I think it was kind of overlooked a lot. Like, I don't think it had a lot of attention. And then you have only two security guards and they're young and they're inexperienced and like clearly it's not like their heart was in it so i don't know maybe maybe it was really possible but like god the guts that these people had to just walk around for 81 minutes that's that's what makes me think like they knew that they were in the clear somehow i just don't know how who knows I mean, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to get this $10 million. Same. That takes us back to the biggest question, probably. The two big questions in this case. is $500 million question. Yeah. And where is it? Where is it the art? Where is it? Where, where is the art? Ah. So there's this guy, Robert Whitman, <laughs> and he was the former head of the FBI's art crime team. He believes that some of the paintings could have ended up in Corsica. In 2006, when Whitman was still with the FBI, he posed as an unscrupulous art dealer who had clients interested in buying the Gardner paintings. During this time, he met two thugs from Corsica who indicated that the Vermeer and one of the Rembrandts was helped by a gang there. Whitman said that the operation turned up nothing in the end, and this was because, quote, bureaucratic difficulties and turf fighting. An officer of the French National Police agreed with his theory, saying, quote, why would the thieves steal a Napoleonic 
finial instead of another painting. Whitman says referring to the gilded bronze eagle because Napoleon was from Corsica. A BBC Four documentary, The Billion Dollar Art Hunt, unpicks the popular theory that the stolen art was shipped to Ireland. It follows the journey of Charlie Hill, a former detective in the Metropolitan Police Art Squad, who received a tip-off revealing that the 13 stolen works were shipped to Ireland. That same informant offered information about the heist to police, and former Newcastle police officer told today that, quote, we were told about the robbery that had taken place in Boston, and the fact that some of the people involved were Irish. I think the information was probably correct, end quote. Anthony Amore, chief of security at the time at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and chief today still, says, quote, in my mind's eye, they, the missing works, are in the local area in Boston, end quote. He said in an interview with the art newspaper, quote, I'm still wildly obsessed more than ever. I constantly think about those paintings. There are two kinds of tips, said Jeffrey Kelly, FBI lead investigator, quote, there are people who have a theory on who was involved in the theft. We check it out. Sometimes it isn't easy because the suspect may be dead or we will interview a suspect and he denies it. Then there are people who are convinced they are very specific that they know where the art is. Anthony Amore said, some callers have been pestering us and the FBI for years, one of them since 2013. Some are very strange. One man recently insisted that JFK Jr. and his wife were the thieves and faked their deaths to commit the crime, end quote. In an article from WBUR, Amora said that he believes the heist was the work of a local criminal gang who had inside information, and he believes the artwork has been stashed nearby. The one question Amor would ask the thieves is, is why they chose to steal the artworks that they did. Investigators can only apply so much pressure to get information because the statute of limitations to prosecute the theft as a crime expired in March 1995. Suspects are told about the potential for immunity from other legal prosecution and the $10 million reward offered by the museum. With over 30,000 leads, hunches, forensic tests, psychic visions, jailhouse confessions, and hundreds of interviews with drug dealers, mobsters, police officers, journalists, and other museum directors, museum guards, art dealers all over the world, authorities are still no closer to finding the stolen artwork. FBI agent Kelly said, quote, I believe that some of the paintings have changed hands several times over the years. It's also quite possible that some people have those paintings and don't know they have it. We are confident we know who committed the crime. We believe they don't still have the art. We don't know if the art is all together or was split up, end quote. While there is no concrete evidence about where the paintings are, whether it's Corsica or Ireland or Boston, in 2014, Kelly told Boston's Fox 25 that police had received a tip that the artwork had been spotted for sale in Philadelphia, where it was offered for sale by those responsible for the theft. With a high degree of confidence, We've determined that in the years since the theft, the art was transported to Connecticut and to the Philadelphia area. However, we do not know where the art is currently located. The art stolen has been estimated to be worth $500 million, but with that skyrocketing art market, like the NFTs, I don't know if you've heard about that in the, the news lately, but it's sold for like $69 million. No, I have no idea what that is. What's NFTs? It's digital art. So it's Ugh, cry me a river. 
it's crazy it's taking off i mean this whole this whole thing could be like virtual art one day maybe digital art what what even does that mean they can make digital paintings or digital like graphics so like in like freaking microsoft paint so you know there's a gif of oh my god i'm blanking on what it is but just think of like gifts that are that are like recreated and then shared a hundred times you can buy the original gift and it could go for a million dollars but you what does that own- even mean the original gift if it's been everywhere what's the difference the between original that was created like it, you can tell digitally that it was the only one like that's the original and everything else is just a copy of it why would anyone ever want the original listen if you're rich i don't get it. this that- collect a bunch of shit if you're interested in art there's n- can you actually tell me right now that they would take virtual or what is this virtual art seriously like yeah they do have you not seen the news lately this is like big this is huge this is like rippling the art community this is shaking so that's what i'm saying like people that are like actual high class like rich actual physical art trader or like buying and selling like they're interested in digital art or are they like what the hell is this going like what's going on i bet there's a huge split there's a huge divide between people art collectors who prefer traditional art and the other half are like ready to embrace this digital art because like isn't that the whole freaking point of art is like you're paying someone to sit down and like make something with their hands and like that's why it's valuable i mean like a bait trust me i'm not into art like i don't really get the whole thing doing it digitally like they're still putting time in to digitally create this a meme can you make that on a website well, it could be other things. It doesn't have to be a meme. It could be a digital painting that you could do on Photoshop, Procreate. It could be um, like an animation that moves. And so you would buy it and then what? Keep it on your computer, on a file on your computer? And you, you would just open it, it up on your computer to look at you it? display it on your many TVs in your mansion. So you display it on a TV. You don't even print it and like get a physical copy? Well, not if it's an animation. You can't print an animation. What's the point so of that? So you have just like a TV hanging up somewhere just showing an animation? I don't think that's crazy because think of those um, those virtual photo things that people buy. I forget what they're called, but it just it's like a slideshow that goes through But it's photos. real photos, like, right? It's a fo- like photos of their families, like a slideshow? Yeah, but it's on like an iPad kind of thing that just sits in your house and it just slides through the photos. Yeah, so you would have one of those of like a cartoon? or meme okay, I, <laughs> I think, think you're losing so... the whole cartoon thing it's not like just cartoons like people literally paint paintings but digitally okay I I, I get that like okay a meme's still art oh um, I know trust me a meme is my favorite form of art trust me <laughs> I like I'm all about the memes but I would never track down the original one and pay for it when why buy the milk when you can get the cow for free or vice versa how do you say that thinking like millionaire moves you know when you're a billionaire millionaire like that's chump change why not buy the original Dude, i can't if i'm a billionaire millionaire if i spend hundreds of thousands on a meme would you still feel bad <laughs> put me down i could save a freaking village Oh my God. I feel like that's what everyone says, but then they become a billionaire or millionaire and no one actually ever does that. Well, that's true. <laughs> and that's sad. I don't know. I Look don't know. Look at every celebrity whose net worth is over like $20 million, billions of dollars. 
I don't, I mean, it's just above me, but hey. I don't know. I think that could be like a whole other theft. I mean, I guess people, people hack things. And yeah, you can still digitally steal it. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. You can still hack it. Probably easier. It probably the 2021 easier. largest property crime. So we go to a museum in 20 years and it, and it's just, it, we just sit, it's just a movie. We just sit down and watch a screen. Not crazy either to think of because Boston's opening up a Vincent Van Gogh interactive. I have seen that for that. That does look really cool. But that's all digital. It's not even his real. It's like they've taken his real artwork and turned it into a digital. That looks cool though because it's like 3D. You're like standing in it. Yeah. But I can see the rise of digital art if you can incorporate VR. So you know how you can do tours now of like Google map has tours of different locations and you can take like a virtual tour. If you can create something that's VR, you can literally walk around museums that are across the world, like still pay for it, obviously, but now you don't have to travel on a plane. You can just be in the home and be like walking around this ancient museum or like Egypt, you could tour the pyramids from your home, but virtually. Oh, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you can already do that with VR. Oh, well, I don't have VR, so I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I have that cheap thing where you put your phone in the thing and- Oh, yeah. <laughs> like that's like, there. you can do it like that. I mean, I'm sure it'll get better. It's gonna get yeah, so I hope so, because years. that makes me a little nauseous, but I can see the rise of that because how cool would it be to, to walk around a museum that was just purely animations where you can like touch it, but your hand would go through it, but it's like this huge sphere just- yeah rotating in the room no, of course i think that's i think that makes a lot i think that's great because then that can get a bunch of people to go see museums who wouldn't normally see it maybe but i still doesn't make me understand why somebody would buy it but but you know what i don't understand a lot of things so maybe we should just move on because this is a concept that is hard for me <laughs> to understand okay simple question then would you go to a museum full of memes oh yeah i do it every day on instagram <laughs> okay there you go you'd pay 20 bucks boom yes i'd pay 20 bucks to go i wouldn't pay it five hundred thousand to buy one yeah but to go you're increasing the value of that meme so now an artwork collector is gonna say i want to buy that meme the original oh, good. they can buy it. i still don't understand why they are <laughs> well i don't understand why people buy half the shit they buy but oh well so the art that was stolen was worth 500 million dollars but experts believe that today it was worth much more because inflation, obviously. Otto Newman, a senior vice president of Sotheby's and a dealer in Old Masters for more than 30 years says, it's at least 1 billion. The Vermeer alone is worth 500 million. So no one really knows the exact estimation or valuation of this, but there's a pretty penny on all of this stolen artwork. That's just another thing I don't understand is like, how does artwork, how, why does it have a certain worth? It's just what someone would be willing to pay for it. Like, why does this one painting, why is it worth X amount of money? Because they know if they would like take a poll of people that would buy art and be like, how much would you pay for this? And like, <laughs> that's the average, like, I don't get it. You have to look at the history, the like limitation. Obviously you can't buy Rembrandt's by the dozen because he died, he's dead. There's like a lot of different factors that it's go into so it. It's so confusing. I'm assuming there's probably like a handful of people at the very, very top of like the art world who are kind of like setting the tone for everything, setting the price for everything, which I guess is the same in, with like the whole world, right? But the other thing that confuses me, and this is what we've talked about before, like off the podcast, 
it's so weird to me that people would steal art like this expensive amount of art because what it's it's not like you can just sell it it's not like you can just be like here's this painting for like 500 million dollars that i just stole like who wants to buy it? you can't just sell it yeah. <laughs> you have to know someone that what it, it collects art and would be willing to buy it but they can't know it's stolen otherwise if they do they wouldn't risk it or maybe they would risk it but it's like and what unless you just want to keep it because you were saying some people would just want it but it's not like the mob I, I like to me it's not like the mob is just gonna be like well i just really want this photo so i'm gonna go in and steal them like i understand they have a certain worth but to actually get that worth out of it is so hard so it doesn't seem like something that would be efficient to me you know what i'm saying maybe but i think they just wanted it to have it like there's some things in this world there's only one of and collectors have to have it that's why collectors collect things because they have to have it so i think in the in terms of like this art where obviously you can't just go sell it down the street and there's a limited quality quantity of it whoever has it now whether they know they have it or don't have it I, they have to know they have it but right how that's knowing the other thing that they like, have it if you're in the art world like in enough to want these things you have to know what they are and that they were stolen from this museum. You have to know. Oh yeah, definitely. They know. And I don't even know, you don't even have to be into art. I mean, if there's only one thing in this world that's created, there's going to be thousands of people that just want that one item. Like limited edition anything, limited edition bags, limited edition cups. Starbucks it almost speaks more edition. to like the weaknesses of the human psyche than anything else. Oh, for sure. It's hoarding. It's hoarding at its best. It's like, no, it's um, greediness at its best. Well, I guess it's almost well, the same thing. It's definitely greed. Lust. Yeah, it's crazy. Narcissism, yeah. like, I need this one thing. I'm I need it because I need to be the only person in the world yes. with this. If that is the case, I don't know. That's so, so the, then the people that are stealing this, obviously the people that want it, like the art collectors aren't stealing it, right? So it's like, if this was the mob or somebody hired by the mob or whatever, then- right then there's got to be connections between the mob and the art collectors of the world so that the art collectors are like, listen, we're in on this together. Like you steal it, I'll give you some good money and I'm just keeping that. So now what people just have the freaking picture of the Christ cross in the Sea of Galilee and it's stolen, but they're hanging it in their living room? Oh, it's not in the living room. There's like an underground room that they have. That's so then what's the point? Just to have it, just to say you have uh, it. So who they tell them they have it? They'll go to jail. They can't tell anyone. It's in their basement and they just wake up with the thrill of knowing they have it. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> I hope, I hope, I pray to God we find where these are. And like, we have this like 2020, two hour long interview. Great interview with the person. Like who, who's a good interviewer? Like freaking Oprah. You saw her interview recently with, um, I didn't Megan see and it. No, I've Ooh. seen a lot of clips, but I didn't see it. I've seen the clips. Juicy. Oprah can get it done. So Oprah will interview this guy. Right. I just want to know what's the point. What did you get out of it? What did you get out of it? Is it worth the rest of your life in jail? Probably. Cause they're probably old. Jail? They're probably like towards the end of their life now. Yeah. And it's been passed on to their whomever's. But no, but if they, they get caught, they it. can't pass it on. They're going to, it's going to, I mean, they might not even go to jail, right? Because the statute of limitation is up. Which maybe, maybe I'm sure they could find something to press them on if they're really in the mob or something. Yeah, I wonder if there's, yeah, I wonder if there's a different crime.
Okay, well, let's bring it back to today's day and age for a second here. Um, obviously, this is a big deal. This was a huge. This was the largest art heist in the world's history. So obviously, there's going to be some media coverage of that. And today, there are countless movies, podcasts, and books about the heist. One movie called Stolen follows the renowned art detective Harold Smith as he pursues the mystery of the stolen works. Anthony Amore, hired as director of security for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in 2005, has written two books. One is called Stealing Rembrandts, The Untold Story of Notorious Art Heists with reporter Tom Mashberg in 2011. And the second book is called The Art of the Con, The Most Notorious Fakes, Frauds, and Forgeries in the Art World in 2005. Isn't that like, what's Trump's book called the art of the deal yeah and this guy's book is called the art of the con interesting <laughs> art of is pretty famous though the, the art, art of, of war, the, the art of not giving a fuck the art of it's a pretty common book is that a book the art of not yeah giving a fuck? <laughs> oh interesting yeah so interesting that he wrote two books that's all i'm gonna say about that also interesting that this uh Art heist has probably caused a lot more people to come visit the museum, like the two of us. Interesting, just saying. <laughs> just saying. Interesting. Interesting. I'm sure they've gained a pretty penny off of this art heist. Anyone out there who's into conspiracies, let us know. Okay, speaking of timing, no one was speaking of it, but we'll bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So, Netflix is releasing a limited series coming April 7th. It's called This is a Robbery, the World's Biggest Art Heist. This is a robbery. This is a stick up. Listen, it's genres, true crime documentary, historical documentary. So you know they're going to have real people, real interviews. It's going to be good. And I hope they right get up my alley. Yeah. So I'm definitely, and they map it out so well. You can already tell from the trailer. This is going to be mint. I'm definitely excited to watch this. Again, is someone like hacking our Google Docs? Because how, how, how? I, I said this the other day and I was like, oh, look at this. <laughs> like, what? We would just like to say for the record, we know you're bugging us. Somebody is, yes, they're either in our Google Doc, they're in our text messages every single time we it's cover something and we're like, this would make a great docu-series, blah, 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 blah. Oh, like freaking magic. We go on Netflix and the freaking new trailers for whatever we just talked about. I mean, Crazy. I mean, whoever's listening, Netflix CEO, whoever you are, just give me like 10 bucks. Give me some money here. <laughs> Literally, how, like just a sliver, please, like half a percent. We'll f- freaking split half a percent. Like, <laughs> we'll split 0.001 between us. Come on. Like, we know what you're on to. We're, we're piling our case. We're going to take you to court. We won't, though. <laughs> Don't Probably take not, us to but, court either. <laughs> come on, throw us a bone, dude. You know what? You know what? What? Forget that. Let's do this. Okay. Sign us up for a contract. Oh. We'll do a mm. limited series called something, uh, something, right? We'll sign on with Netflix and we'll do a limited series that covers some of the cases that we covered. It'll be like true crime in New England and we're going to help them. Yes. Okay. Anyway, yeah, that's nuts. Also, I I do love though Netflix 
I mean, I, I hate you for stealing my ideas, but I love you for throwing out a new true crime docuseries like every week this year. It's nuts. It's like every every Friday I go on, I'm like, what's my plan for the weekend? And sure enough, it's right there for me. Last weekend, it was Murder Among the Mormons. Next weekend or April 7th, it's this is a robbery. Thank you. Have you seen these paintings? They're worth half a billion dollars and they disappeared 30 years ago. Whoever finds them will receive a $10 million reward. Anyway, we just had to let Netflix know that we're on to them, but also um, apparently give them free promo anyway. So whatever. Check that out on April 7th. Um, should be good. So back to the little ending of our story here. The heist obviously remains the biggest unsolved art theft in world history. It was the biggest art theft in world history, and it is still unsolved. Today, according to Gardner Museum Organization, the museum is offering a reward, like we said, of 10 million doll hairs for information leading directly to the recovery of all 13 works of art in good condition. God, can you imagine if they were just like, <laughs> like, buried in the ground or something or just like torn up or that would be fun that would, that would be kind of destroyed funny. and you're like where's my 10 million they're like actually we just revalued it we're giving you ten dollars thanks for finding them <laughs> like somebody's kid just freaking doodled all over them <laughs> that would just kind of be like a beautiful ending in a weird way Anyway, a separate reward of $100,000 is being offered for the return of the Napoleonic Eagle Finial, or whatever it's called. Finial. Anyone with information about the stolen artworks or the investigation, you know what? We said they should contact the museum, but honestly, guys, why don't you just contact us directly? Um, and we'll take care of that for you guys. We'll make sure it gets into the correct authorities' hands for you. Um, so just come to us with any information. But in all reality, confidentiality and anonymity is guaranteed by the museum. The current contact is Anthony Amor, Director of Security. You can call him at 617-278-5114 or email him at theft at gardermuseum.org, which is pretty funny. Uh, you can also find information about this and so much more on the museum's webpage, gardermuseum.org. So like Kirby said, we were lucky enough to go visit the museum recently. It is open. Um, also, museum is a kind of good activity to do during this COVID time. They limit the amount of people that are in there so that it's at the certain capacity. Um, they make you go at a certain time so that you can kind of like cycle people through. Obviously, everyone's wearing masks. I mean, they're taking the precautions and it was nice to kind of get out and see some things. Um, it is located at 25 Evans Way in Boston. We highly recommend you go. There are a few discounts if you guys are interested in that. My savvy people out there. If you're a senior, 65 and up, holla, shout out to the seniors, you receive a discount. If you have a Massachusetts EBT card, you receive a discounted admission at $2 per person. That's not bad. College students, I mean, that's great. College students with a current ID receive a discount. And there's the university membership program that provides certain colleges and universities in Boston in the Boston area complimentary admittance for their students and faculty. And the best discount of all of them is listed on their website. It says, is your name Isabella? Well, Isabella's receive free lifetime admission. But 
So if you're listening and your name is Isabella, you can go to this museum every single day for the rest of your life for free. So that's sick. But I, I think, think that's they do the ask funnest me. fact. Yeah, that's that is the best fact. I they they will ask you for ID though, so you can't just say your name. Oh, yes, they definitely do ID you. So, but I mean, if you want, you could get a fake ID and put your name on it. If you're like Isabella's 18 and you're considering getting a fake ID anyway, you might as well get one that um is Isabella. That way, two yeah. stones in one. Just kidding. Not that we're condoning illegal things. Oh but yeah, I mean, don't do it. Be it's kind of funny. <laughs> but but like free admission to the museum. Yeah, just yeah. <laughs> when we say get a fake ID, we just mean so you can go to museums, not so you can go to bars. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. So when you get to the museum, you walk in, and there's this beautiful indoor garden, like in the court of the museum. It spans the entire height of the museum, so it's really tall in the middle. Um, the ceilings are like glass, so it's sunny, and the entire museum is basically built around the perimeter of this square. It's very photogenic. A lot of people were taking selfies over there and I don't blame them. There's a lot of greenery, a lot of plants. They change out the plants like every season, a lot of sculptures in there, some water, you know. It's super cool also because only woman statues were built in it. Like that was one of the fun facts when you're reading. It was like, notice all the statues are women. And then you're looking, you're like, oh yeah, they are. Some of them have their heads missing, but that's okay. Uh, the museum is three stories and wraps around in an ascending circle. It's very homey. Um, we both could see ourselves living there. Like Isab Isabella did. She lived on like the fourth floor. She had her own. I mean, she lived there. And I mean, shit, I don't blame her. It was very pretty. 10, 10, 10 out of 10. Yeah, 10, 10. Also, though, oh, we do recommend if you do, if you do go bring headphones because there's this oh, thing right. online you can do where it basically gives you a tour, like an audio tour. And we didn't realize that, so we didn't bring headphones. So like, you can also read it on your phone, which I was doing, but if you bring headphones, you can like listen to an audio tour. So I recommend that. Yeah, pro tip, bring your AirPods. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. That's it, folks. That was the big Isabella Stewart Garden Museum. We've been wanting to do that one for a while, actually. Yeah, but we wanted to wait until we could go. Museum closed, everything's yeah. got in the way. We've been wanting to do this since I think season one, and it just kept getting derailed. Yeah. Oh, well. What we a fun finally one. did it. Yeah, a fun one. It. And right before the Netflix release, it was meant to be. Again, we did not it plan this. It was meant to be. And well, the St. Patrick's Day. Yep, that it is. We are coming up to the end of our season finale, folks. The last three episodes will be one topic trifecta yes story. it's a big one it's a big case we're doing an interview we're excited you should be excited and that's all i have to say yeah i agree we'll probably throw like a teaser up on instagram probably so that you guys yeah, probably can... maybe we'll see we'll see we'll also throw up some pictures for this episode so that you can see yeah definitely the museum's gorgeous part. and it's cool to see the empty frames i think where they would have been it is cool. It's kind of daunting because you're just kind of like, wait, I wonder if people go there and don't know that there was an art heist there because it's just like, you'll see a wall of a bunch of pictures and then just like one big empty frame. So if you didn't know, you'd be like, why is there just an empty frame? But Oh, remember though? Okay, so it's it's very weird. Most of the museums that people probably have been to, everything's behind glass and everything's like, you cannot yeah. touch it. 
hypothetically, you could reach out and touch it because nothing's behind glass in this museum except for like some very priceless artifacts, but it's very rare there. There's this huge, ginormous book. It was like a book of <laughs> prayers or something. It's just sitting out. And we were looking at it because we're like, is that a real book? It, it was literally probably the size of you. The full <laughs> it was length of freaking you. It was so big. It was, and we're yeah. leaning in and they have like staff members in every single room to make sure that you don't touch it. But also there's an alarm that goes off and the guy's like, step away from the book. And we're kind of like, why? We were just looking at it. We literally weren't even touching it. We were just trying to see if the pages were real. And he's like, oh, there's an alarm that goes off. And then I kid you not, like two seconds later, someone was doing the exact same thing we were doing. And the alarm just like, beep, beep, beep. He was like, I told you. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I stand here all day. I know when it's going to go off. Yeah. Yeah, but like, also, you're telling me that they just put a rope across it and they don't expect people to bend over with their fucking nose to look into the book. Like, come on, put it behind glass or something. Greasy little fingies all over the book. No, no, no. no. We didn't touch it, but I'm just saying we were trying to see it because I've got bad eyesight. So I wanted to see it better. But yeah, it's very weird. It's a it's a different museum than what folks are probably used to. Yeah. It is kind of like you're yeah, you're like, can I am I not supposed to touch this? There's like benches everywhere, and you're like, wait, is this a bench for me or is this a piece yeah. of artwork? Am I is not supposed to sit? Does it say I can't sit? I, it's very <laughs> confusing when you go. It's very confusing. Yeah. Basic rule of thumb, don't touch anything, don't sit, just stand there like a statue. And that's it. <laughs> and just observe. Also, no flash photography. Yeah, which is tough because the museum is dark because it's inside. And my flash just kept going on automatically. So <laughs> also why they should probably put it behind glass because that would probably help. But very cool. Recommend, recommend going. Follow us on Instagram, Killer Base Podcast at, well, at Instagram. At gmail.com. <laughs> at Instagram. Gmail is the same. Facebook's the same. Twitter's Killer Base Pod. We also would like to introduce to all of our listeners a little promo. This promo is for a very true crime. Interests include oddities, conspiracies, taboo topics, and true crime. So here's a little promo to Reverie True Crime. My name is Paige, and I'm the host of Reverie True Crime. Reverie means to daydream, but even daydreams can turn into nightmares. Join me as I tell you haunting and horrific reveries about missing people and senseless murders. I also interview survivors and people seeking justice for themselves or a loved one. New episodes come out every Monday morning and sometimes you'll get bonus episodes on Thursdays. Wherever you're listening to this current podcast right now, you can find Reverie True Crime. All right. Thank you, everybody. We will see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye.